Welcome to Season 2 Women in STEM Podcast. I am your host, Kelly, and expect from this season amazing guest host speakers from around the world and information that will help enrich your life and knowledge about women in STEM. Welcome to the Women in STEM Podcast, and today we'll be taking a bit of a short turn and we'll be talking about the S in STEM. So here with me to joining us today is Priya. Introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, so yeah, my name is Priya Rangan, and I am an American scientist, um, born and raised in the U.S. Um, did all of my schooling up through my P- up to my PhD um, in the in the U.S. And it was only recently in life that I decided that I wanted to have an experience abroad, and so um, I left for Italy in the middle of the pandemic. And, um, and continue to now work for a company in Italy. Um, and I would say through this entire process, um, what I wanted to, from, what, from what I wanted to be as a little kid to what I'm doing right now has definitely evolved and changed depending on the circumstances and um, emerging passions in different subjects and trying to basically figure out what I really like and what I wanna do. And I'm happy that I have a chance to talk about it here on um, the Women in STEM podcast today. Yeah, that's great. So would you let us know what your career path has been so far? Yeah, so I basically, when I was a little kid, um, I really was fascinated by the, the simplest forms of biology. Um, and so, you know, I, my parents are immigrants from India, and I think a lot of um, children of Indian immigrants can relate in the sense that um, there is this uh, strong kind of um, uh, emphasis placed on valuing science, uh, STEM-related subjects. And so this idea of trying to kind of not really push, but just kind of persuade your student or your uh, children to pursue uh, careers in STEM more for like financial security and stability later in life is something I think we all can relate to in that sense. Um, And so that was a major influence into me having that interest for biology as a kid. Um, And also my family, um, I had a lot of uncles, a grandparent who uh, eventually became PhD recipients in chemistry and we're teaching in India and universities. And so that influence of science was very prevalent, at least in my life. Um, It wasn't really until I started my undergraduate um, at a local university in Northern California that I realized that I wasn't sure if just going towards the pre-med, becoming a doctor type route um, had to be the only thing. Um, I I learned in that time that research is also something that um, is very valuable and could also contribute to um, a doctor's kind of uh, expertise and knowledge and perhaps even make them more um, helpful when it comes to treating patients. Um, But a long story short, I I would say that at the time I was also going through a lot of personal struggles. Um, I had developed depression and an eating disorder right uh, at the end of high school and going into college. And so that was something that I had to kind of personally struggle through while also trying to figure out what I wanted to do in my career, because I would say that your undergraduate years, you're still trying to figure out who you are from, you know, a young kid to 
becoming a young adult and continuing to pursue um, whatever career you hope that you want. And so at that time, I ended up deciding to not go down the um, MD or doctor pre-med route because I felt like the um, what I would have to sacrifice may not really lead to what I hope would le- it would lead to. And I felt like pursuing a PhD was safer, but also something that was still in line with what I was interested in. And I would say because of what I was going through personally with my eating disorder at the time, the only thing that seemed to really keep me motivated and fascinated research-wise was nutrition and nutritional biochemistry. And so I ended up um, doing a PhD um, in a program called Biology of Aging. And I actually did my research in um, uh, age-related projects and age-related diseases, but with the theme of dietary restriction and nutrition being the um, overarching umbrella of those projects. And so I pretty much went from a kid who wanted to be a doctor, just like any other Daisy kid, any other Indian kid, um, to someone who ended up really specializing in aging and nutrition. And that was basically coming from more of a personal struggle. And also just to add to that, um, I did recover from my eating disorder while pursuing my PhD. And I'm very grateful for that because it made me realize that it wasn't just one thing I was interested in. I pretty much realized that this PhD would come in handy no matter what I did later on in life because I could use that as a way to demonstrate my skills and other um, other skill sets. So um, public speaking, um, scientific writing, technical writing, um, communications. And so um, it was a it was a progression in that kind of phase of my life as well. And as to realizing that I didn't have to limit myself to one thing. That's a great response. And thank you for sharing all that information with us. Um, So with regards to a career in science, like what type of career options are there available? I know that you said that before you're planning on before you're planning on being a doctor. And so when you were looking in towards the scientists, the science realm, did you see any other career options that are also available? Yeah, so um, when I basically decided that I would pursue a PhD over an MD, there was a period of time where I actually learned about, at the time it was new, I think now it's a little bit more established, something called uh, MD-PhD programs. And so those are programs that were very novel in the fact that um, people pursuing those, uh, the dual degree would be able to get an MD along with their PhD, although it would be a combined total of eight years. Um, At the same time, that is a very um, competitive uh, program to pursue, but it is also something that grants someone with absolute flexibility. They can practice as a doctor, they can pursue research, they become a um, research clinician. Um, But that is to also say that you don't need that to do those things. You can always get extra training later on in life. Um, 
And so during that time, um, even though I decided to focus on the PhD, and I was also very focused on what I wanted to do my PhD in, I was still aware of the fact that there is a whole industry outside of academia that has a lot of different types of careers, and there's a lot of different ways to pursue them. So um, even if someone didn't want to pursue a PhD, um, it is relatively um, it's, it's not impossible to find a job um, without a PhD. So you could have your master's, you could even have your bachelor's. It really is a, just a matter of figuring out along the way what you're interested in and making the right connections. Um, so going on LinkedIn, for example, and trying to find people um, in the company that you're interested in, in um, with the type of um, schooling progression that they have versus you. Um, so for example, um, if you have a master's or you wanna get a master's, it's good to connect with people that found jobs right after their master's or um, followed a similar um, uh, schooling to you. Um, and so at the time, I would say that jobs that I knew of at the time were um, research scientists in industry. So basically doing the same type of bench work as in academia, but doing it in an industry setting. Um, and there were also um, career options in clinical research. So basically managing clinical trials, working with patients directly or subjects directly, um, enrolling them, uh, monitoring their parameters for the particular trial. Um, and then I would also say that when I was actually into my PhD and started going to um, career conferences and networking more, that's when I started to realize that there are hundreds of different types of positions in industry, and it really gets more detailed once you kind of figure out in general what you are interested in, and then there's a lot of opportunities to continue to specialize. Great. And so with regards to like your current role, what what exactly is a scientific communications? What what does that mean? What does that entail? Could you go into yeah. about that? Please? Yeah. Yeah. So um, at the moment in in the biomedical um, um, clinical pharmaceutical industry, um, the scientific communications role um, can be defined in very broad terms as um, someone who basically takes very technical information about the research being conducted and depending on the audience, be able to communicate that research in an effective way so that the people that you are talking to um, understand the main points of what the company is trying to sell or what the research is being, what, what type of um, key takeaways are being um, taken away from the research that is being done on a product on a molecule, on a potential new drug. Um, and then it really, and then that's more of the broad definition of what a scientific communications or person that is working in scientific communications does. Um, but then depending on, again, if you're talking about a specific pharmaceutical company, if you are talking about um, a general science education um, foundation, the definition, the definition can get a little bit more specific. Um, but in general, that is what someone who is working in scientific communications does. Great. And overall, how did you find your PhD process? Like, how was the process to going about getting your PhD? And how did you find your experience of doing a PhD? Yeah, so um, this is just to kind of um, 
give some background as far as the PhD, how a PhD works in the US versus in other countries. So I know that in Europe, um, the PhD tends to be about three years long and it's normally um, mandatory to do a master's um, right before that. Um, in the US, it's actually quite different. Um, you can actually go into a PhD with just a bachelor's um, if your bachelor's is done in the US. Um, and that's something that a lot of people actually may not know, especially coming from um, internationally from another country. Um, they may think that you need to do a master's, um, that, that it's mandatory. But if you think about it, the PhD in the US is about five years long. And, and the first two years are pretty much taking classes, doing lab rotations, um, and really not getting, really not devoting 100% of your time to research until that second to third year. And so um, for me, I actually did my bachelor's. Um, I graduated a year early, and then I spent that kind of gap year applying to PhD programs, doing research in a lab that was in my undergraduate um, university. And um, I was able to get accepted to the program that I wanted to go to. And um, so my first year was basically just taking molecular biology classes, general biology, um, rotating in labs. And um, then I joined the program uh, or the lab that I wanted to join um, towards the end of my first year. And so I would say the first and second year of my PhD was very um, um, set in stone as far as I kind of had to prioritize my classes over the research I was doing, but I still had the opportunity to really get a head start on my research. So I was doing a lot of pilot studies. Um, I had the opportunity to work with mice right away. So I was kind of enrolling them on an um, age by age basis. So I had I had kind of already set up the protocols that I was going to be needing to use going forward. So it was nice to have that extra time to kind of get acclimated to the environment and um, get um, more used to the routine that I was going to have for the next couple of years. Um, and so going forward, my third and fourth years, I would say, is when I started to feel like I was in control of what I was doing, but at the same time, a lot of pressure. Um, I also had the opportunity to lead two very distinct projects. I mean, a lot of PhD students end up really working on a specific topic and kind of staying within that topic and really diving into that subject really, really deeply. Um, I had a very unique opportunity where I was working in two different disease areas, although having the commonality of um, a treatment that the lab that I was working in was um, specialized in. And so at this time, I really had to learn how to be completely independent. I had to learn how to communicate how I was feeling or what I needed um, to different types of people. So if I felt like I needed undergraduate students, it was on my terms to figure out how to go recruit those students and get them to the lab. Um, if there was um, something I needed to learn, I kind of had to go out on my own and figure out how to do it, get it done. Um, so it was nice to kind of learn those skills because essentially those are skills that are needed in you know, the real world outside of academia. Um, but at the same time, there were a lot of moments where I was very anxious about the outcome. I was, there were a lot of moments of imposter syndrome in the sense that I wasn't sure if people really respected me or if people really thought I knew what I was talking about.
-hmm. And um, I kind of went through a dark period towards the end of my fourth year, really trying to push um, the completion of one of the projects that would allow me to graduate upon publication. And I would say, I, I mean, I think most PhD students go through this um, when they look back on their journeys. Um, but there was a time that I was thinking that I would drop out and master out because I just wasn't sure if I could really handle the rise and grind and, um, and not know what was going to happen. But thankfully, I was able to have a paper accepted and be able to graduate and, you know, complete the PhD. Um, but it is a reality a lot of people face in the sense that is it worth continuing or am I better off just stopping it right here and just mastering out and moving on with my life? <clears throat> and so I was, it was almost like um, I had mentioned earlier in this um, conversation that I had experienced my first kind of bout of depression when I um, finished high school, starting college. And it was, again, something that was popping up even during my PhD. Um, but I think once the, the um, circumstances got better and I knew that I was finishing, it got better as well. And that also led me to um, my next um, kind of chapter of my life, which was deciding to do a postdoc um, and doing a postdoc abroad, um, which also had its own challenges as well. Right. I mean, you've kind of touched on a bit the next question that I wanted to ask you, but with regards to your career and everything that you've experienced or anything else that you've seen from other people's experiences, what advice do you have for women in STEM with regards to, um, you know, bouncing back from rejection or career setbacks? Right. So I think just based on what I've experienced as far as um, my own journey with having to kind of pivot at certain times, because, you know, I'm definitely not doing what I was planning to do when I was a kid or even an undergraduate um, um, age. And so I feel like it's very, very important to not look at yourself as a failure. I know it's very difficult to just completely ignore that feeling. So when I go look back at what I've experienced, um, and if I were to talk to myself at that younger age in my life, um, I would allow myself to kind of have a period of mourning, so to speak, in the sense that, you know, give yourself that time to say, you know, why did this happen to me? I know I did all I could, but why is this, why am I experiencing this and feeling a little bit sad about it? But then quickly realizing that it's not the end of the world, it's not the end of your life, that, um, if you look at it from a different perspective, um, there are different opportunities that can be pursued. And at least at that point, you know that what you did and what you, the energy that you put into something is not all lost. It's, I think it's a, it's a sign that it's better off changing direction right now than to keep continuing this and continuing to feel like you're failing. And so I feel like, for example, when I talk about how I did a postdoc abroad, um, this opportunity was supposed to be in Italy and it was supposed to be a three year long fellowship and um, in a field outside of what I did my PhD. And so I went into that thinking it was gonna be an amazing opportunity to get immersed in a culture while also really expanding on my expertise in my career and opening up a lot more opportunities um, in that sense. 
in reality, what happened was um, COVID really affected me as far as my mental health. Um, the expectations I had going into the postdoc were not matching with my um, superiors. And I really came to the realization that if I continued down this path, I would not be happy. And not being happy means not having the energy to produce the best work you can. It means not being the best person you can be to other people, mood-wise, um, energy-wise, um, physically. And so, so I think when I think on that example, and I kind of tell people uh, or talk to people about what to do if they're faced with something like that, or if they're faced with failure or the premonition of failure, it's not the end of the world. That is a huge sign saying that now's the time to change and this change can be for the better. And for me, when I decided that I would prematurely uh, quit my fellowship and move into industry and pursue a job that I thought would be more in line with what I was interested in in my career going forward, I think it was the best decision that I made. I feel like if I had continued in the fellowship now, I, I don't really, I honestly don't really know what kind of mental state I would be in because I, looking back, I was just absolutely so disheartened, so unhappy. Um, my, and that was my entire year last year, just feeling so stuck in the position that I was in. Um, and then another thing I think to think about as women in STEM is the idea of being able to stand up for yourself and kind of ignoring those imposter syndrome thoughts, which again is very difficult when, especially if you're around people who don't really want to support you and your and really kind of um, look out for your mental health. Um, and so I think it's important to kind of be aware of the signs and be aware of what your triggers are and kind of know like if something is feeling unsettling, if someone is making you uncomfortable as far as making you feel good about yourself or making you be have the courage to speak up about why you're feeling a certain way and what needs to be changed. Um, going outside for help or going outside for support, um, whether it be through counseling or seeing a therapist or even just um, someone who is an ally who can help bring change to the environment, the workplace environment. Great answer. And do you have any recommendations of uh, resources that you might recommend to others that have that's helped you with your career or any resources that you can recommend to, for women in STEM? Yeah, so I think depending on which stage you are in your career, um, there's a couple of things that come to my mind. Um, I think from the time I started my um, undergraduate to now postgraduate and working in industry, a lot of things have popped up since when was uh, since when I was starting and what what I actually had that was available to me. Um, for example, when I was applying to PhD programs, um, I was a lot of times using books from the library as far as practice tests and things like that. Um, but at the time, some a program called uh, Magoosh GRE Prep had just come out, and that ended up being an extremely helpful resource for me in getting the score I needed for the GRE. And I'm sure that was about almost 10 years ago. So I'm sure since then, there's a, a number of similar websites and resources like that. And honestly, the only 
way I found out about that was just through a simple Google search. Um, so really is about keywords as far as finding particular tools to help you in exam prep for getting into PhD programs or master's programs, graduate school programs. Um, and then another thing that has also helped me is just keep making sure my LinkedIn is very current um, and at least current in the sense that it's enough to be ready in case you want to connect with someone on LinkedIn who is in your um, um, ideal career path. Um, and it's never too early or too late to start networking. Um, so even if you are listening to this and you are in high school or you're just starting your undergrad, um, it's, it can be very helpful to connect with um, graduate students or postdocs or people in industry and really just learn as much as you can about what the current state of affairs is in those types of careers, um, because that is always changing as well. And I would also say, depending on, um, again, where you are in your career, um, when I was applying for PhD programs, um, it really was just reaching out to the uh, primary investigators of the lab and sending cold emails. So emails that were already kind of um, written in a certain way, showing that I was eagerly interested in joining their lab, why I was interested, um, and offering to be available to meet with them in person, I think is a huge um, sign of your uh, motivation. Um, but then of course, I think over the years and because of COVID, we've all become accustomed to virtual meetings. So meeting in person is just the same as meeting all um, over the computer. So um, I don't think it's much of an issue as say 10 years ago and actually, 10 years ago, um, I had actually ended up driving down to meet um, my professor who, or the person who ended up being my professor in my PhD, um, because I, I really did want to show that this was something I wanted to do. Um, so I think that's also one thing to keep in mind. Um, you know, whether you go for, you know, um, a inquiry meeting, an entry, entry meeting, or you go for an interview, or you go for, you know, just networking with a peer, treat mm -hmm. every single meeting with the utmost importance as if you're going to be getting a job to be the director of a um, company that's making millions and billions a year. Um, I think the best thing you can do um, as, far as, um, as far as getting these resources and really kind of gaining from them is to treat them as as, as like valuable pieces to helping you get the dream job that you want. So learn as much as you can from the people you network with. Um, really kind of, if you're going to pay money for um, online um, exam prep, for, for example, really take the time to seriously um, practice those exams and um, read the material. Um, and then when it comes to meeting with potential um, superiors that will lead you to the job that you ultimately wanna to get to, um, really keep those time commitments. So be very firm in what you wanna offer and show that, do everything in your power to show that you want what you want um, is what I would say. Great, and how best can people get in contact with you? Do you have any social medias? Um, or any I don't know, events or 
posting that you might be doing that you'd like to plug? Right. Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn, um, Priya Rangan, PhD. Um, <clears throat> and I'm happy to connect with anyone who has any questions or would just like to connect as far as um, getting some ideas on or discussing scientific communications and um, potential um, pathways to that career. Um, it helps me if uh, if you want to connect just to kind of sit, give a short message whenever LinkedIn allows you to, just so I know, um, you know, uh, how you found me and why you want to connect. That really helps me. Um, and then as far as socials and extracurricular kind of um, uh, communication platforms. Um, on Instagram, I have an account called Science Not Scary, all one uh, word. And that is actually, again, related to scientific communications, but more specifically highlighting um, the latest in clinical trials and specifically on diseases that we deem scary as a society. So that's more of a personal project that is related to scientific communications with the goal of trying to reach people on a platform that many people do use, but provide some educational information in an easy to understand way and really kind of um, push the idea that science is not scary. It's not something to be feared. It's something that is for everyone and we need to do what we can to make it accessible for everyone. Um, so that is another page that I can be reached at as well. Great, fantastic. Thank you for coming on the Women in STEM podcast and for sharing your story and your some career advice. I think it's very insightful, especially for those who really want to go into the sciences. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you to the amazing guest host speaker and thank you for listening to this episode. Please make sure to follow the podcast and to follow me on social media at Kelly underscore engineer on Twitter or Instagram. As well as please make sure to check out our new YouTube channel called Women in STEM podcast to see our latest episodes visually. Until next time, bye.